The right to a trial by jury is a constitutional right in the United States. It's actually the only individual right that appears in both the Constitution itself and the Bill of Rights, which are the first ten amendments to the Constitution. The Sixth Amendment in 1791 guaranteed every federal criminal defendant the right to trial by an impartial jury. Basically, the idea is just that when there's a trial, there are a handful of regular old American citizens who sit through it all, shuffle off to deliberate about the facts of the case, and come back with their verdict. I'm quite happily glossing over a heck of a lot of rules and procedures, but the gist is that the public is involved in these trials. And this didn't start with the Constitution. In 1623, the pilgrims who slammed into the New World set forth the colony's legal system. They decreed, quote, that all criminal facts and also matters of trespass and debts between man and man should be tried by the verdict of twelve honest men to be impaneled by authority in form of a jury upon their oath. But the pilgrims had carried the idea from England, and the basic premise of a jury has been around forever. You can see roots of it in ancient Greece. Trial by committee is almost written into our DNA at this point. But, I mean, let's face it. (laughs) We're just letting a bunch of random dudes, and for a long time it really was mostly just dudes, we're letting them play a key role in the legal system. And I don't know if you've met, uh, people, (laughs) but they sometimes have a funny way of making decisions— Whole episodes of this podcast have been devoted to the idea that people make mistakes in their thinking. Which is why psychological scientists have made a point of figuring out how juries make decisions. In the early 1950s, and with the help of a bunch of money from the Ford Foundation, researchers began the University of Chicago Jury Project. The initiative was that social science techniques were to be used in studying legal phenomena— They analyzed existing data, they surveyed judges and attorneys, they interviewed former jurors, and they ran experiments with mock juries. Actually, they also planned to use another research strategy, too. In 1954, they recorded six jury deliberations in Wichita, Kansas. And this was all above board. Judges and lawyers signed off on all of it. Because what an incredible opportunity to witness these deliberations directly. The thing, though, (laughs) was that the jurors didn't know they were being recorded. Microphones had been secretly planted in the heating units in the jury room. A year later, the fact that these recordings existed became national news, and it wasn't pretty. One editorial called it a, quote, stepping stone to wrecking the entire system of justice. So, yeah, mock juries it was. And they came to some useful insights about how these things played out. One key finding came from their interviews with 1,500 former jurors. Before deliberations begin, jurors indicate their personal verdict, fresh from hearing the case. And in 30% of trials, these initial votes were unanimous from the jump, so no deliberation needed. But the rest of the time, when the jury starts out with some disagreements, 90% of the time, their final verdict matched the majority verdict coming into deliberations. The rest either can't come to an agreement at all, or, in only 4% of the trials, the initial minority prevails. I'm just saying a coincidence is possible. In the years since the Chicago Jury Project, social psychologists have kept digging into the quirky psychology of jury decision-making. How do groups make decisions? How do aspects of a trial shape a jury's way of thinking about it? How does a juror's personal background guide their perspective? Until we abolish the jury or replace it with an AI algorithm, there will always be new questions about how everyday people 
decide each other's fate. You're listening to Opinion Science, the show about our opinions, where they come from, and how we talk about them. I'm Andy Luttrell. This week, you guessed it, we dive into how social scientists study juries and how they process the facts of a case. I talked to Dr. Michaela Spruill. She's a postdoctoral fellow in criminal justice with Spark at Stanford University, and she studies juries and the legal system's role in sustaining social inequalities. I was excited to talk to Michaela and get the scoop on the benefits and drawbacks of juries and learn more about her research, which considers the role of race in evaluating legal cases. So let's get into it. If you were, so, you know, I'm sure this happens all the time that people ask what you do and uh, you round tables where everyone goes around and says, this is the thing that I'm interested in. What is your elevator pitch for the kind of work that you do? So my research, as I mentioned, I am trained as an experimental social psychologist, um, but my work itself is very interdisciplinary. Um, and so my main research focus is looking at how our individual judgments and decisions kind of sustain and maintain systemic inequities. And I mainly do that through the lens of psych and law. Um, so I look at how people operate in juries and come to jury decisions. I also look at how constituents think of certain policies um, and the overall ramifications of all of those things together. So I'm housed right in that little <laughs> pocket of psych and law, um, but there's a lot of different disciplines that come into play in the work that I do. I'm wondering if there's a chicken or the egg question of whether the interest in law was first, the interest in systemic inequity was first, just interest in just like psychology in general. Like what actually, what is all of this born out of? Like what, what was that itch that, that brought you here in the first place? Yeah. So I think the interest was probably mainly psychology first and then systemic inequities and in understanding how um, specifically the U.S. is kind of structured, um, what went into the structuring of our current nation, uh, that's where law directly came in. Um, so it kind of followed a nice little progression, but psych was at the core in the beginning. In the beginning, there was psych. So, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and so the interest in the legal system kind of serves just like a functional purpose, like, well, how else will we understand how the system operates if we don't get a handle on like how people interface with this particular system in the country? Exactly. Um, I've described it before as um, most of the disciplines that I uh, currently study and lean into um, kind of came together and occurred because the work required it. Right. So my understanding of history um, is born out of wanting to understand the law and in understanding the law. I had to know when these things were in place and what kind of the context of that moment was um, and the impacts that they had. Um, and then from wanting to understand uh, the law itself came sociology. Right. What is this broader landscape that all of this is happening in? Um, how can I kind of understand and, and tie in these principles? And for the most part, at the core of it was individual kind of attitudes and decision making, which is 
cured, like psych at it, at its uh, basis. Um, and so with that, it was like, how do you connect the individual to the kind of this broader picture um, with the legal system? So it all kind of interplayed together, but required each other for me to kind of come to this bigger picture that I'm currently in. I think that's why I wondered the like uh, trajectory of it, because it sort of seems like it's one of those things where you can't know one of them without all the others. <laughs> you go, well, was it where you got to start somewhere <laughs> like, <laughs> to, to get into that? And, and I think maybe to, to backpedal for a minute, to make this particularly concrete. Can you give an example that that might help people kind of situate themselves into what the kind of work that you do is? Like, what kinds of things could you point to as instances of systemic inequities that have to do with the way a legal system operates? I think the main uh, systemic inequity that I leaned into and wanting to understand was um, kind of the pattern of things happening in the criminal justice system along the lines of, of race. So um, there's been a long history of um, it being documented specifically in psych, but in, in uh, science broadly, um, that there are certain patterns of uh, instances in the criminal justice system thinking of um police stops, traffic stops, um, actual outcomes when it comes to uh, case decisions and things um, that have these large racial disparities where, for the most part, individuals of African-American descent or kind of have African-American phenotypes um, are receiving harsher punishments in these kind of cases and in this sphere. Um, And so with kind of this broader interest that I had in that specific inequity, um, there came a need to understand, well, how do these cases operate in the first place, right? Um, how does the legal system kind of uh, come into operation as a whole? What role do police officers play in the timeline of an actual case where uh, are they the initial stop? Are there other things that happen um, to get people into the system beforehand? What happens after someone um, comes into contact with police officers? Um, Just kind of the downward uh, trajectory or like timeline of these things occurring. Um, And the need to understand that brought a need to understand the legal system as a whole. Um, so with that, that was kind of like the core uh, inequity that I was uh, initially interested in um, that kind of brought in this whole kind of legal piece of, of understanding the system as a whole. So so there, so just to make sure I'm understanding, there are r- racial disparities in how severe punishment often tends mm-hmm. to be doled out <laughs> with the criminal, criminal justice system or even just like generally the legal system, I imagine. Right? Exactly. Um, yeah. And to try and figure out like, well, <laughs> what's that all about? Uh, you can unpack the process through which those decisions get made, right? And sort of look at yeah. each step along the along the chain of events. And you, I think you hinted at a few, but like, what are the sorts of things that you might turn to, to go like, okay, where should I start looking <laughs> in this system to try and understand where are these disparities coming from? 
Yeah. I mean, there are so many different cogs in the system where you can kind of turn to. Um, So one, you can look at police officers themselves and their actual behavior, the uh, trend of behaviors and patterns that we see. Um, You can also look at prosecutors, right? Um, And see kind of the outcomes that are coming out of um, uh, the decisions that they're making regarding plea deals and um, what charges are being brought up against certain people for certain crimes. Um, You can also look at judges and the decisions judges are coming to. And then in my work, I mainly look at juries at this moment um, and kind of look at how juries are coming to these decisions and, and what kind of factors are going into the way that they're coming to the conclusions that they are in this space. Yeah, I want to talk about juries. What what is their deal? <laughs> like, uh, you, you put it very well in this in this uh, summary article that I think speaks to a concern people have, which is like, isn't it wild that we just hand the keys over to a bunch of random people and say like, yeah. how about you make the decision <laughs> on our behalf? Uh, and that's both to the credit of democracy and also like, but now is there is this the best way <laughs> to do things? Um, and so in the grand scheme of things, like, what's your take on juries? Like, are these are these a net positive or a net negative? Uh, well, okay. <laughs> I'll have to come from my own perspective. I think it's a positive. I think juries are a core strength of our democracy, honestly. And um, I'll preface by saying when I speak about the legal system, I mainly speak about the legal system in the United States, since that's the context that I currently study. Um, so juries in this context, I think, are are strength in the way that they are intended and um, thought of to operate. And there's a strong place for psychological science to um, kind of speak on the way that juries do operate in the ways that we can kind of get juries closer to operating along the equitable lines that uh, the law intends for the jury to operate. Um, so yeah, I think they're a core pillar of community. I think they communicate a lot of community norms. They're a space where we get to say, uh, this is okay for our society and this is not okay for our society. But I think there's a lot of room for improvement as well as we kind of understand um, how juries have historically operated in this country um, and how they are currently operating, um, as uh, many people will note that there's almost a vanishing jury occurring right now where a lot of decisions are being made by prosecutors and plea deals and all of these things. So um, thinking about the role of the jury and and the positive that it effect that it does have on society and um, the role that community members get to play in this kind of legal body, um, what does it mean that, that we're seeing a diminish diminishment the reduction i guess in the amount of um jury activity that we're seeing in these days in criminal and civil trials as well hmm. is there is there a transparency concern i mean if it sounds like the concern is like there's a behind closed doors the fancy people are making decisions <laughs> and and we don't exactly know what's going on but at least when there's a jury involved you go like okay some of us are in the room <laughs> and are like bearing witness to to how things are unfolding. Exactly. I think there's 
a lot of power in in uh, stating that you know lay citizens can also be experts in what they want and what they want that how they see their society operating. Um, and even though we are in a moment where there are plenty of people um, that are getting all of this background in the law, um, there's there's a lot to uh, a benefit in having the folks in a community kind of having the space to state. Uh, that this is okay and this is not okay. And uh, these are kind of the, the norms we'd like to establish for our society as it moves forward. So how, how so these are philosophical <laughs> takes on the role of a jury. As a scientist of juries, what are the sorts of things that you can do to try to actually get answers to the question of whether juries are doing their job or not? Like, what do we, how could we know that? How could we have definitive or at least definitive-ish answers to a question like that? Yeah, so they're definitive-ish <laughs> answers, of course. <laughs> um, but, I mean, to answer that question, I have to call back on the work of um, – you know, the, the psych and law scholars that come before me. Um, so looking at the work of B.B. Ellsworth or Sam Somers or Jennifer Eberhardt, of course. I, I mean, the list goes on. Sherry Diamond, Valerie Hans, who I work directly with. Um, these folks have been the ones answering these questions of uh, how do we kind of, as psychologists understand the way the jury operates. Um, what tools do we have in our toolbox to um, kind of test and, and, and question um, these factors that come into play as juries make their decisions? And then how can we leverage this to make the actual juries um, better, I guess, or operate in the way that they are intended to do so. So um, there's plenty of work using uh, mock juries, right, uh, bringing them into this experimental context to understand um, not only how juries are coming to these individual decisions, right, how they're comprehending the evidence that they're being exposed to, how they're kind of piecing these different pieces of information together, because a lot of times in trials, you're getting these, especially long trials, you're getting these different pieces of evidence from these different folks coming in, um, giving their testimony at different times, and you kind of have to place it within kind of this episodic structure to make sense of it. So using mock juries is a clear way for us to kind of understand first at the individual level, how individual jurors are coming to a sense of these things. But then when they get into these groups together, um, how they're kind of coming to these collective decisions as well. Um, another real strength of the field is that we have like real world data <laughs> also to see these outcomes as well. Um, so when the defendant is of uh, uh, certain identities or when even looking at state level and different geographic regions, right? Um, how are these decisions being made? What differences are occurring in the setup and structure of juries in these different places, right? Um, and how that's kind of tying into the ultimate decisions that we see um, being doled out. So uh, it's it, we experimental social psychologists at this point have a lot of tools in our toolbox to kind of understand what's happening in the real world, but also kind of pull the levy um, and seeing what different factors can be moved um, to understand the dynamics of of what goes into sound fact finding for for juries in this space. Have you been a part of a mock jury study yourself? 
running one? Or? So yes, uh-huh. <laughs> I'm currently currently planning and conducting some, and um, it is difficult. Yeah. Is what I'll say. It's I, a lot. I want to <laughs> know what like I, I have a I have an image of it, and it's like a low budget theatrical play <laughs> and and I don't know how close that is like at the extreme end like we're doing you know whatever the uh what was the 12 angry men is that the the play that the favorite? like yeah. we're staging a play at the yeah. other extreme we're just giving people some things to read and go like pretend you're there <laughs> and uh exactly. what would you say is that kind of like they could be any of anywhere in between or are they mostly one version or the other like give us a sense of what, what do these look like yeah so it depends on uh i mean different researchers have taken different strategies um for this so some people do um bring uh lay people from the community into the lab and kind of have you read a few things um whereas some people have been in the courtrooms and uh waiting to see like jurors or potential jurors being dismissed and calling them into a room like okay you were dismissed from this trial but let's let's work on this if you think about these things so there are different degrees um in and how people approach conducting mock jury studies. Um, the thing about pulling people in from the community, it seems like it would be kind of the easier option. But then if you ideally have six people scheduled together and five people come that day, you know, like you can't run your study, you lose a whole session. So there are a lot of factors that go into um, making kind of mock jury studies work or not work. Um, and so that's why a lot of times in the field, I think, I'd have to double check myself on this, but I think about 80% of um, psych and law studies that focus on juries are actually looking at more so individual jury decision-making rather than um, kind of these mock jury group context type of studies because there's so many different factors that go into it and it, it's quite a complex uh, task to take on. Um, but the benefits are definitely there. I think it's, <laughs> I think it's worth it. If you can lean into it, um, I think there are a lot of strengths um, for conducting these studies. So, so these individual decision-making studies that make up the bulk of this literature, this is like, hey, you're a person and we're going to kind of give you the script for how a trial might have gone. And then at the end, we're going to ask like, who do you think should be found liable or whatever? Um, and And then like within that, you know, for 30 of you, I say that, you know, oh, I, I paint this kind of a picture of the person. And for a different 30 people, I paint a different ver- uh, picture of the person in the materials and I can tinker with it. But it's really just like a written script, right? Essentially is what people are witnessing. Yeah, I think it varies. Like some people will use uh, like video, mm. um, they'll use actual transcripts and things, mm. but I, you've got the gist of it <laughs> down. Um, yeah, so we'll we'll call in individuals and kind of get those initial pre-deliberation um, decisions, which is very valuable for us to know how individuals are coming to these judgments as well. Um, because when you do look at the overall group, um, especially in... Uh, most criminal trials today, uh, they require a unanimous decision. 
Um, and so knowing how each individual kind of stood before they got into that space and started um, talking and kind of updating their own beliefs based on what other people were sharing in that moment um, really lets you kind of have an insider view on the trajectory of how people are thinking about these things, how they're piecing them together, um, and the overall kind of psychological process that's that's happening um, before they get to that group. And then once they're in that group, how they're how they're being impacted. Hmm. So we have all these studies that are just piling up about how juries work. And having reviewed that work, you identify ways in which the evidence gives us some encouragement that this process is a good one and other evidence that makes us go, but also like there's, there's room for improvement. Can you give us a sense of just like a couple of those things? Like what do the data tell us about the ways in which juries are useful and like effective, I should say, and evidence that that points us to like, well, when when this happens, things kind of spin out of control. Yeah. So there's a lot of data that suggests that juries themselves, when they're um, confronted with um, the task of coming to these decisions and they receive the instructions, that they report having kind of low comprehension levels. Um, so they feel like themselves, they don't understand um, what the exact legalese they're being confronted with kind of means. Um, but in actuality, when uh, studies have looked at the decisions that juries come to and that judges come to or judges forecast they would come to regarding certain trials, they're neck and neck. Juries are doing a pretty solid job alongside legal experts, um, which is very reassuring for us to know that juries are, are getting it. But if folks are feeling like they're not comprehending um, the instructions, then there's space for, for improvement. And so in the review, we talk about um, different reforms that have been put in place to help jurors feel more so like they are um, understanding the task in front of them, one so being updating um, the actual instructions to kind of reduce a bit of this legalese so it's um, easier for juries to comprehend and understand um, exactly what they're being asked to do. But then also um, with the way instructions are doled out, um, the timing of those instructions, right? Um, so a lot of times in these trials, and this was surprising to me, is that individuals receive the jury instructions after they've heard all the evidence, right? So they know, they learn how they're supposed to judge this and come to their ultimate decision after they've been given um, uh, all of this background information. So I compare it to like, if you went to a basketball game and you knew nothing about the rules of <laughs> basketball, so you watch the whole game and then you're expected to, at the end, tell them who won, right? Who who got the most points or like understand it after you get those instructions. So that is, is like basically what juries are asked to do in this space. So some reforms are moving it where you're getting these instructions at the beginning now. So you can understand exactly how you're supposed to judge the game while you're kind of watching it or like um, receiving this evidence. Also, with the instructions that individuals are receiving, oftentimes they receive them orally from the judge. Um, so they're just kind of told the instructions um, and they don't necessarily get a written copy or a written copy that they can keep and take into the deliberation room with them. And um, they're also sometimes not allowed to take notes 
during these trials, right? Um, so there's a lot of information um, that they're just supposed to absorb and kind of keep uh, encoded in their brain and able to recall when they're in that deliberation room and expected to kind of come to this decision as a group. So these reforms are now shifting that um, based on what we know about how people operate and how our brains operate best for for actual comprehension and understanding um, and and helping jurors out to have uh, a more seamless experience when they're expected to kind of come to these decisions where they can feel more confident in themselves and the way that they're, they're coming to their actual decisions. Mm -hmm. Um, If we roll this into your interest in systemic inequities, are there factors of jury deliberations that matter particularly for something like that? Yeah. So <laughs> when I think of uh, the systemic inequities that exist in, in the legal system, I, I usually um, look at these things along the lines of race, racial inequities that exist. And um, with juries, one of the big spaces that I've been um, very uh, vocal, I guess, or, or prominent and in leaning into is jury composition um, and what it means for certain people to be prominently um, featured in, in juries and other people to be more so excluded from, from jury service. Um, and there are a lot of factors that go into comprising a jury, uh, starting all the way at how uh, people are brought in for um, jury selection, right? Um, so there have been reforms um, on how we kind of find individuals and select individuals for um, jury, uh, even to come in for, for the selection process. Um, initially, they were, a lot of times it was based on like voter registration and things of that nature. And if you're familiar with voting and um, issues that come up with voting disenfranchisement and who has driver's license, who's, who doesn't, right? Who are prominently um, featured in those specific pools. A lot of times it doesn't represent um, the actual body of individuals in a specific community, right? Um, there are some individuals that are more likely to have these factors than others. Then when you get to the actual jury room, um, uh, prosecutors and, and uh, lawyers have a lot of say in who makes it on the actual jury, right? Um, so they have room for preemptory challenges where they can basically um, say, you can stay on the jury and you not so much. Like they're get biasing. <laughs> exactly. There's room for bias um, based on different factors that this individual may have that they feel like won't help their their client or individual kind of have a fair trial. And historically, we've seen that um, there are racial differences and kind of who uh, receives those challenges and then is asked to kind of or excused from jury duty. Um, and there have been large reforms that have been put in place to uh, try to address that. Um, so I'm mainly thinking of Batson, Batson challenges, um, which I'm very much so in legalese at this mm-hmm. moment. Mm-hmm. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> there are larger forms that have been tried, that have been put in place um, to attempt to address these things. Um, but they, they haven't had the full impact um, that I think folks, folks have thought they would or that they were intended to have. And so a lot of times the juries that we have, whether it's criminal or civil trials, um, may not look like 
a jury of peers based on who the defendant is in those those cases. And so this is a large area uh, where I think inequity exists and these systemic problems kind of have a, a bit of bear when it comes to the jury and, and how these decisions are made. So there's an ethical reason to say we ought to have diverse juries because the whole principle of this is it's representative of the people who are involved in the world. Uh, but then there's a potential pragmatic case to be made too, which is to say like, well, if we want things to function properly, diversity is an asset to good decision making. And my sense is there is some evidence that suggests that that's the case, that the diversity is not just like a a value ideal, but also has pragmatic benefits too. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you're leaning directly into uh, Sam Somers' work from 2006. He has this uh, incredible study, which um, this is a side antidote, but uh, when attending APLS, which is like the psych and law kind of conference, there wasn't one session I went to where Sam Somers' work wasn't cited <laughs> or mentioned by different folks. Um, so the impact of this work is is quite far reaching. But um, yeah, his work where he shows uh, when you have more inclusive juries along the lines of race, um, the process looks a lot different in these deliberation rooms where um, individuals in these more inclusive juries are taking longer um, on their actual deliberations. Um, they are correcting each other more often. So when there's uh, misinformation or, or uh, inaccurate information um, that's floating around in the conversation, they're more likely to correct each other. Um, they are bringing up uh, a race in these kind of uh, uh, deliberations more often. So um, there seems to be an awareness that there are these kind of overall uh, differences and patterns um, and outcomes um, that comes to mind in these spaces um, and and uh, the actual decisions that they come to um, look a lot different. Um, so whether or not they're giving out guilty or non-guilty verdicts also differ based on kind of the composition of these juries. Um, and I think that's really important for us to keep in context that um, the inclusion of, of different folks from different backgrounds into these juries, um, it's not as you said, it's not just a nice to do. It has actual positive benefits for the way that people are thinking about and and uh, debating and coming to their actual conclusions regarding um, these actual trials that affect the lives of so many and have these broader impacts for our overall society. And just as another aside, one thing from this work um, in this line of work from Sam Somers that's also been shown is that it's not necessarily that um, Black jurors are, are speaking up more about these issues in the space. It's the mere presence of these individuals on the jury that calls it to mind for other folks that are in the room, which is really powerful um, when you think about it. So it's not necessarily that folks have to be the loudest in the room or, or taking up more space. Um, it's just that the inclusion of folks in these, these spaces makes other people call to mind, oh, this factor and this factor and this factor, things that they wouldn't have necessarily or might not have necessarily thought of in the absence of these individuals. And so, yeah. Great. Well, all, all those other people's work is, is wonderful, uh, and, and I'm sure they're wonderful too, but, but I want to talk about the work that you've done also. <laughs> uh, and so 
One of the things, as I understand it, one of the things that has pervaded a lot of the thinking that you've done is this objective reasonableness standard uh, that gets invoked in these kinds of things. So in terms of like, how are the instructions given to juries potentially shifting the ways in which people make different decisions? Um, can you give us a little bit of background on what this standard is, wh what it's all about? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So in my line of work specifically, um, I I think I start with the world a lot of times when I ask my questions. Um, and I noticed this pattern, which many legal scholars and, and lots of people in society were, were attuned to, um, where when it came to police indictments um, and police use of force cases, um, we oftentimes see this pattern where police officers are not being indicted. Um, so I think it's only about 1% of these cases result in actual indictments, right? And from knowing the legal system, uh, one thing that is of note is that in any other case where grand juries are making indictments, over 90% of those cases result in actual indictments. Um, so what is it about police use of force cases that we're seeing this reverse pattern, right? What is it about these specific cases where we're seeing this different, um, outcome occur so many times over and over and over again, um, in different courthouses across the nation? Um, and so this led me, um, to get really curious about how the law is being doled out, um, and that directly led to jury instructions for me. Um, and with that, I found the objectively reasonable standard, which is um, this piece of jury instructions um, that's been in place uh, for about three decades now, where um, in judging police use of force cases, juries are expected to not judge the case based on whether the actions were necessarily right or wrong, but whether or not the officer's actions were reasonable. So would an objectively reasonable officer in the same situation, knowing the same amount of information as the officer in question, would they come to the same decision, right? Was it reasonable, their actions in this space? And I found that to be quite intriguing um, as a psychologist, because what is reasonable? And even the terms objectively reasonable to us as psychologists, these seem like complete opposites, right? Like the way we reason about things um, is not an objective way. It's very subjective process. Um, and so I started questioning, well, for juries, what does this mean? How is this being understood by them? And thus, how is it being applied in these cases? And could this be a factor um, in the kind of pattern of results that we're seeing in society in this specific space? So, yeah. So, yeah. So what, how, what does, what, what do we know <laughs> when, when people hear this, when they think about this comparison, right? Cause it, it's meant to be kind of a comparison. Like here, I understand the facts of what happened and I'm also imagining a hypothetical world in which some hypothetical other officer who meets these standards of reasonable <laughs> intervenes and makes a call as well. And I'm really just kind of comparing like, did the facts of the case resemble what would have happened in this hypothetical environment, in which case what happened was reasonable, or is there a, a disconnect? And I go, well, what happened isn't the same thing that would have happened if the officer were reasonable. Exactly, exactly. So it's this understanding of like, here's the case in front of me. Would an objectively reasonable officer 
have done the same thing or come to the same conclusions given um, the amount of knowledge that the officer in this case had. And so what we see here is that specifically when we ask juries and potential jurors to think about an objectively reasonable officer, um, what comes to mind for them is, is, is quite different for certain people than what comes to mind for kind of an average officer. So how they're kind of making this decision. And with kind of these objectively reasonable officers being held at this kind of higher standard, you can infer, if, if you will, um, how that might tie into the process of how people are thinking about officers in these cases and this standard by which they're expected to judge them um, and the resultant kind of decisions that we see in this space. So, um, so far, what we know is that the this legalese has an effect. It's it's having an impact on the way that people are thinking about officers in these cases. Um, quite a large effect, actually. Um, as as uh, social psychologists, you don't expect to see big differences um, from such a small wording change, right? You change like a word or two, um, and you don't necessarily think that that type of framing will have such a large impact on the way people are are thinking about officers. But what we see in our work is that for both black and white um, potential jurors, they're being brought to the same positive standard um, when they're thinking about these officers under this objectively reasonable kind of descriptor or legal language, um, such that Specifically for our, our Black participants, um, when they think of an average officer, kind of these two comparisons, um, they are kind of describing the officer as uh, less positive, more negative, um, as well as along the lines of uh, two key um, identity factors, less warm and um, less competent. So there's kind of more negative views that are being held about these officers. However, under this objectively reasonable standard, they're being brought up to this exact same like positive kind of conception of an officer um, in these in these instances. And so that's really powerful for understanding um, or starting at least to understand the patterns that we're seeing in society when it comes to these cases. I was trying to think of what the implication of that difference really is because it's in some ways i mean it kind of shows that people on average don't think about police officers as meeting this criterion right like kind of you yeah. say describe the average police officer people describe something different <laughs> than when they're asked to describe uh, an officer who has uh, you know objective reasoning c- capability yeah. and and so what does that mean like ultimately what's what, what's the implication of that Yeah, uh, it depends on the person, right? Which is one of the big things that we see in social psychology. All of these things have lots of nuance, but it depends on the person and their background, right? Um, And so it seems that for people that, you know, come from environments where they've had kind of more positive interactions or positive conceptions of police officers, um, that average and and reasonable it seems to be a little bit closer. There's not much of a difference there. However, for individuals that come from environments where um, their understanding of police officers are a little bit more um, on the monitoring or overseeing type police officers using different kind of strategies in those different contexts, um, what 
comes to mind as an average officer seems to be quite different than what comes to mind for an objectively reasonable officer. Um, And so they're being, when they think about an objectively reasonable officer, they're calling to mind the kind of officer that other individuals from those more positive um, environments are are bringing to mind as well. And so uh, it's it's that big context matters things that we talk about in psychology all the time um, and how that kind of shapes the way different people are thinking about officers kind of in this space. So these are folks who are saying, yeah, objectively reasonable officers would be great, but uh, <laughs> I don't know that that's uh, the norm. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Hmm. So yeah. so it, it kind of comes back to this question of diversity on juries, because it, another implication of that particular finding could be that if Black folks are routinely left out of juries— those juries don't have as much of the perspective that an average officer differs from an objectively reasonable officer, which may sort of stack the deck in favor of going, well, whatever's going on out there must have been reasonable because the average police officer meets those qualifications, right? But there is there is variance in people's um, preparedness or disposition to see reasonableness as part and parcel of an average officer. Yeah, you're right on the money. That's exactly it, right? So all of these things are connected and understanding the way that jury composition operates, um, who's in the room to bring those different perspectives, or I often refer to them as priors, right? Our prior beliefs on how the world operates, our knowledge on how the world operates, um, who's in the room to bring that kind of um, experience and perspective into the jury uh, really matters, Um, on the resultant decisions that we see in this space and understanding that there are differences. So this work kind of highlights that we're not all operating at the same conception of what uh, an officer is at baseline. So then what does that mean when we're confronted with this kind of legal language and putting it all together? Um, Having this in the canon to kind of highlight that and show that these differences exist really does emphasize, well, what happens when we do Um, kind of bring all of these perspectives into the jury together um, so that they could ideally uh, make a a decision together. Would that lead us to more um, sound fact-finding in this space, right? Like more equitable outcomes, I'll say, um, when it comes to uh, the actual decisions that are being made here. Because I'll just preface with with cases and jury decision-making, there's no such thing as like, the right decision. Like you don't know if a jury comes to the right decision, right? Um, but they can get kind of accurate, right? They can try to be accurate um, and they can try to come to the most sound, um, logical answer that they can in these spaces. I was wondering that too, when I was asking about like, how do scientists of juries yeah. even test the question? It's like, what is the benchmark? Like what is the marker of a functioning jury? Exactly. Um, And so that's why I refer back to uh, the literature, like comparing um, juries to judges who are thought of as kind of these, and they are legal experts in these spaces, Um, because we can never really say if they came to the perfect right answer, you know, um, the only benchmark we kind of have is like comparing when people have all of this information are they coming to similar um, decisions? Are, are, are the patterns kind of matching between these two? So, 
Uh, as we wrap up, I noticed that you have a paper. It's not out in the world yet, but it's on something that I find interesting, which is uh, advocacy for reparations. Um, are, are, would you be up for telling me what the yes. deal with that is? <laughs> uh, yeah. Sort of yeah. just spell out, like, I, this I know nothing about, other than the fact that you're working on something in the advocacy and reparations space. What uh, mm-hmm. w- What is this about? Yeah, so... Um, uh, when I was describing kind of my, my research perspective, uh, one big piece of, of the work I do is uh, looking at how people think of policies and policy attitudes and policy opinions. And one of the main policies that I've leaned into thus far has been reparations. Um, I look at racial equity policies as a whole, and I have um, an amazing uh, paper out, a collaborative piece um, with a few folks from Cornell, as well as other institutions that kind of um, helps us understand uh, in a communication sense um, how science has thought about and communicated regarding um, racial equity policies thus far, where our gaps are and how we can be more effective in that space. Um, but my core contribution, and, and I think one of the reasons why I was brought into that project is because I have done extensive work um, looking at the way Americans think about reparations, specifically Black and white Americans, um, and kind of understanding what barriers exist um, to our support towards these policies, right? Um what kind of uh, specifically psychological barriers along the lines of stereotype endorsement, right? Um, as well as the timing, the scope of reparations. So in the United States, usually when you bring up reparations, um, individuals think of chattel slavery, right? Um, and the role that the United States as a whole played in the transatlantic, transatlantic slave trade. But um, reparations has been offered in a number of different contexts. um, And a lot of times we're seeing it now in the context of police brutality, right? Um, So uh, if you think of Chicago, Chicago is one city that um, successfully passed a reparations ordinance um, for victims and descendants of of police brutality in their city. Um, And so having that as one of kind of the primary uh, examples of reparations passing in this nation in, in the last few years, um, my collaborator and I asked ourselves, um, what are the differences that occur and how people think about uh, reparations for police brutality, how they're thinking about that in comparison to reparations for um, chattel slavery in this country, and how that contrast um, between those two uh, may lend itself for us understanding ways to kind of shift or understand the way people um, are thinking about this policy and and, uh, what's driving that support or opposition that different folks may have. Um, And one of the core pieces that we land on there is is financial stereotype endorsement specifically um, and how people are thinking about financial stereotypes regarding African-Americans. Um, in that space and how that doesn't come up as much when you're thinking about police brutality, you're thinking more so about time um, and how close it was in in its occurrence. Um, And so these kind of core factors lend itself to the way that um, the policy is currently thought of um, and and the current state that it's in today. So um, in my overall kind of research landscape of thinking about these systemic inequities within kind of these legal systems. Uh, this is a law 
um, that could be moving forward in, in society, but has been really stagnant um, throughout history. Um, and so it's an interesting way for us to understand where people stand currently um, and what the, the potential direction for this policy is. Hmm. And I, I, I maybe just don't have the design quite right, but is it the case that you'd be able to say, like, under what conditions is support strongest and under what conditions is support weakest? Like, there's like a default frame in which people on average are going, no, thank you, uh, versus a frame where people go, well, okay, I could be on board if, it, if, if you make me think about it like that. Exactly. So we asked about these things in terms of whether people are thinking of financial reparations. So think about cash benefits, direct checks to individuals, or if they're thinking about this in terms of material reparations, which um, if you followed uh, the most recent Democratic primaries, reparations was a hot topic uh, for a lot of the, the, the primary candidates. And the way they talked about it was more so in terms of college waivers and and housing subsidies, you know, and educational pieces of material benefits that could be offered to individuals rather than this financial component. And what we're seeing in the data is that for Black and white Americans, there's some more support towards material uh, versions of reparations in comparison to um, these kind of financial forms of reparations and which is traditionally thought of. Um, and that difference um, is really seems to be explained for and, and kind of accounted for by, by the different financial stereotypes that people hold about the recipients of reparations in these cases. So um, yeah, it's very interesting work. Um, uh, my collaborator, Dr. Amy Crush and I have been working on it for quite some time and we're excited to see it out in the world yeah. is the, uh, the stereotype the financial stereotypes are that like about like responsibility being able to spend this money responsibly versus being able to take advantage of these opportunities responsibly is that what you mean exactly so um uh, we use specifically um terms that come from divine and colleagues work regarding the different types of stereotypes people hold about certain groups. And, and one of those is financial stereotypes and the words that are associated with African-Americans and financial stereotypes are like lazy, as you mentioned, uh, things about responsibility, um, like, like uh, financial responsibility, uneducated is the main one as well. So the more individuals personally endorse those things, um, the more likely they are to show this shift where they're more supportive of material reparations compared to financial reparations. It's interesting because it's it, it's not so much about the deservingness. Like sometimes this this public opinion debate is about deservingness. Like, ought we do this? This is more like maybe we agree this is a good idea, but I don't think it's going to be effective based on exactly. my assumptions of this group. Exactly. And so that's been one of the, I think, interesting pieces when people uh, are um, witnessing this work or we share this work. Um, one of the core questions that we often get are like, well, wouldn't this differ by like political affiliation or like ideology? Um, and one thing that we specifically see uh, mainly amongst our white participants is no, it doesn't because it's not about this kind of deservingness question you're thinking of, right? It's leaning right into this idea like, okay, maybe I think this is a positive, um, something that should be done, but how it's done 
and how it's operated and doled out really matters for for individuals across across these lines. So yeah, it's it's interesting work and it's upcoming work, and I'm very excited for it to be in the world very soon. Very cool. Well, this has been super fun. Uh, and thank you for taking the time to talk about all this stuff. Fill me in uh, on my gaps and the <laughs> how these procedures uh, play out. And yeah, thanks again for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a joy. That'll do it for another episode of Opinion Science. Big thank you to Michaela Sproul for taking the time to talk about her work. You can check out the show notes for a link to her website and the work that we talked about. You'll also find links to sources in the intro on the history of juries and research on how they work. And I have to say, having to say the word juror so many times, I so desperately wanted to reference the rural juror. <laughs> uh, but but I, I, I left it for just this moment to say. Dear listener, make sure you're following or subscribing to this podcast. 2023 is wrapping up, and it was a great year for the show. I I'm still so grateful for the chance to talk to so many sharp people doing interesting things in the world, and I appreciate your support in the process. I hope you're enjoying it too, and hey, if you are, you can leave a nice review of the show on the internet somewhere, like Apple Podcasts. You can share this show with a friend. You can pitch in a few bucks to keep the lights on. Head to OpinionSciencePodcast.com for past episodes, fun stuff, and ways to help. Also, I know I've been teasing this for ages, but this time I really think, truly, it's almost here. Did I say that last time too? Probably. Anyhow, a five-part series on the story of behavioral economics is coming in January. I've been working on this with the guys at the podcast Behavioral Grooves. It turned out to be a much bigger job <laughs> than I anticipated, because I can only really work on it here and there. But we've talked to some amazing people who really ushered behavioral science into a new era, and we're sharing that story very soon. It's called They Thought We Were Ridiculous, The Unlikely Story of Behavioral Economics. Keep an ear out for more on that soon. But in the meantime, that's all for me. <laughs> Thank you for being here. I'll see you in a couple weeks for more opinion science. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.